Hello, and welcome to the Signpost Inn podcast, a space at life's crossroads to connect with God and find direction. Pour yourself a drink, grab a seat, and join us on the back porch for a friendly conversation about Christian prayer, spirituality, and faithful theology. My name's Matt. And I'm Brandon, and we're really glad you're here. The Signpost Inn podcast is brought to you by the Signpost Inn ministry, where we offer spiritual direction, retreats and sabbatical residencies, and lots of resources and training. You can find out more about what we do and support us by visiting signpostin.org. Hey everyone, I'm sure you've heard of Black Friday and Cyber Monday, where we all shop for great deals on Christmas gifts, but have you ever heard of Giving Tuesday? It's on the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, and during this time of year when we spend so much on gifts, Giving Tuesday is a way to celebrate that generosity and that hospitality by giving a gift to your favorite charity. And this month, we want to be your favorite charity. You know people who feel exhausted and alone, people who are burned out or deconstructing. You also know people who are vibrant and growing and are just looking for like-minded Christians to support them. And you want to help them. So do we. Like you, we're passionate about throwing open our doors and welcoming people. We create spaces literally in our office, at retreats, or in our homes, and metaphorically through our resources like this podcast, where people can rest and reconnect with God. Through the incarnate grace of hospitality, we help people to pray and grow in biblically faithful ways. So this giving season, your donation to our ministry will help us keep our door open. So as you're shopping for that next great Black Friday deal, please keep us in mind too. What better gift can you give than the gift of welcome and connection with God? To donate, please visit signpostin.org donate, and please give generously. Your gift will change the way someone relates to God forever. Peter, welcome to the porch with me. Listeners, Peter uh, and I are sitting in the office right now, and we have been talking for quite a while about this, what we wanted to record today. And so you're going to get dropped into the middle of a very interesting, deep, convoluted conversation that Peter and I are going to try to work out together. But Peter, as we were talking about this and what we were going to talk about you brought my attention to a passage in the book that you're reading with our book club. It's a book called Interior Freedom by Jacques Philippe. And both of you and I have read it. We love it. That's why you're doing a book club on it. If you're listening, go out and buy the book. Uh, go to our website. We have a recommended reading list. Buy the book right now. You will thank us later. But you brought my attention to a passage in the book that has presented a lot of confusion for yourself I confess it has presented a lot of confusion for me, and this conversation seems like us trying to figure it out. So here's the place that it starts. The book is talking about learning to have freedom in Christ, which is, we could talk about what that means forever. But the gist of it begins with kind of a paradox. Freedom only comes through first accepting reality and even more specifically accepting myself as I am as a sinner. So I'm going to read this little passage that you brought my attention to and we'll kind of, what are the questions that come out of it, right? So Felipe says, God doesn't love ideal persons or virtual beings. He loves actual real people. He is not interested in saintly figures, in stained glass windows but in us sinners. A great deal of time can be wasted in the spiritual life, complaining that we are not like this or not like that, lamenting this defect or that limitation, imagining all the good we could do if instead of being the way we are, we were less defective, more gifted with this or that quality or virtue, and so on. 
Here is a waste of time and energy that merely impedes the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And from what I understand, Peter, like you agree with that statement. I agree with that statement. But the question we kind of keep asking is, isn't wanting to get rid of our defects the whole point? (laughs) Isn't like, so God gives me the Holy Spirit, reconciles me to himself. How can you now tell me that it's a waste of my time to be thinking about how I can improve and get rid of my sin? Shouldn't, isn't that what I'm supposed to be doing? And if so, so if that is what I'm supposed to be doing, how do I become a better person? The fact that I, what I actually experience is how, how little progress I've made. And that seems really disheartening. So there's like two paradoxical things here. One is, wait, post isn't the whole point of this thing for me to be getting better? And second, if it is, why does it seem so hard to do and it maybe is even impossible? Mm. I think that's kind of where we've got this question boiled down to to some extent. Yeah, I think you're right, Brandon. Yeah, I totally agree with what Jacques has written here. I mean, the essence of the gospel is that we are accepted on for Christ's sake just as we are, sinful, right? It's grace, it's gift. He loves us as we are. When I read this passage, like I feel emotional about it. Like it resonates not just with my head of like, yes, I know that Jesus loves me as I am, but like I actually like, oh man, he doesn't he doesn't love the Peter that I think I ought to be. He loves me and he cares about me. And and like there is like a, a weight off the shoulders there of like, wow. That, that feels freeing to remember, to remember the gospel. Like Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, while we were unideal, while we were actively running away, choosing other things in the face of God, he died for me. His acceptance of me is not conditional on my reforming my life. And like, amen, I need to, I, if I can't say that, I've lost the gospel. Pause there. That that's really that is true. I need to remember that. But then the paradox then comes of like, okay, that's the gospel. I'm accepted as I am. What comes next? What so what should I expect then with my life in Christ? I want to grow more. I want to experience that freedom. Christ offers to me. But as the passage said, like it seems like there's a paradox there of like if I'm if I'm focusing on oh my limitations, my sin, I'm actually impeding the work of the Holy Spirit by focusing on those things. So so how do I do that productively? How do I not get in God's way, so to speak, but how do I genuinely desire for change without getting mixed up about Jesus's love for me being dependent on that change? Right. I hear so many people asking that other question too, which is, I genuinely desire the change that seems to be what God wants for me. I mean, you had referenced Hebrews 12 earlier, and we had kind of looked at that, and right? So Hebrews 10, 11, 12 is about this very thing. It's like, you have been reconciled with God. You are in the temple. You are in the Holy of Holies because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now, live like it. And there's these like warnings, you know, if you don't do it, it's bad. And and so there's, so there's this second question, which is, I do genuinely desire to become a better, more Christ-like person. I think that's the goal of this thing, but I don't see it happening. So what does that mean? Am I ruined? Mm. You know, and 
have I, did I not really understand the gospel, which is kind of what I hearing you say there. It's like, it's Paul and Galatians. It is for freedom yes. that Christ has set us free. And you're like, amen. Yes. Awesome. Wait, how come I'm not free yet? And what does it mean? And, and now you tell me if I focus on trying to live by the spirit, I'm ruining it. Yes. Yeah. That passage has come to mind throughout this conversation just pointing to like there is a distinct clear picture of this is possible for freedom Christ has set you free it's not something to hope for or dream about he says it's happened for freedom Christ has set you free therefore do not submit again to a yoke of slavery and so there's part of me that like then why do i keep submitting again to a yoke of slavery right and so i think the question kind of boils down to on this side of the cross Knowing Jesus is redeeming love for me, he has died for me and accepts me. What should I expect in my Christian life, in my Christian walk with Jesus? Uh, Yeah. It's almost like what's reasonable to hope for. Right. Should I expect to set aside the bondage to sin? Is that realistic to expect that as Paul has encouraged us? Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Our expectations filter how we experience life. Right? Like if if I expect I'm gonna live a victorious, free life, and I can expect to see the sins in my life being curbed, you know, and and, and stopped and, and I am growing in faith, hope, and love, if that's what I am expecting, it's going to inform how I respond to my own sin, others' sins. Like that expectation kind of determines how I am looking at the rest of my life as I walk with Jesus. So can I jump in and say, I think here's what initially hits me now that we're kind of clearer on the question. What came to mind was like, let's tackle a theological side first. Within my tradition, within our tradition, the Lutheran tradition, there's a teaching on the two natures. It goes by various names, but the idea is that the two natures of human beings, of redeemed people, that we have the new creation, the new man, and the old man or the fleshly man, that is the, the sinful man. And I've been in a lot of debates about this theology, about its truth and everything else, a, like accurate statement about how the world really works. And, I, and all of those times, I feel like they're missing the point because I don't think the doctrine is trying to describe an actual ontological reality, but rather it's trying to describe the paradoxical experience that you're having and that I think we all have, which is I am told because of Christ, I have been fully reconciled to God. My sin has been cleansed and I am no longer counted as a sinner before God. And yet I find that I can't help but sin. I I literally... I can fight all day long. I can fight my whole life. I can even maybe have success in getting rid of some sins. But every morning I wake up, there's another one waiting for me. (laughs) And the more I go, the older I get. It's like, and I used to talk about this in lectures I would give. It's like the Christian experience, I believe, is not this experience of, man, I'm getting better and better every day. You know, I'm just amazing. But the true Christian the one who's really paying attention to their lives is like every morning he wakes up or she wakes up and is like, I never knew how bad I really was. Having turned 45 years old this last summer, my experience in life has not been, I am a better person than I was 20 years ago. 
I have beaten some sins, quote unquote, beaten some sins. I have stopped some behaviors. <laughs> I have managed some behaviors that I don't want to do in my life with great success. But in so doing, my understanding of why those behaviors were in my life to begin with has deepened. And what that has meant is I've been like, oh, crap. Like the roots of those external behaviors is deep selfishness, deep fear, deep demanding for approval and pleasure and control. So my experience is not like, I'm a much better person than I was in my 20s. My experience is like, when I was in my 20s, I was a complete ignoramus about how <laughs> how <laughs> sinful and like yeah. selfish I am. And so while, yes, that's helped me manage some behaviors, my experience is I'm a real sinner. Okay, so to bring that to a point, the teaching that we have these two natures is sort of like saying, look, here's what it feels like to be a Christian. By faith, I am brand new, totally cleansed. There is no sin in me. That's what God says. But my experience every day is, holy crap, there's so much sin in me. <laughs> and you can't unite those into one ontological being. It's describing a paradoxical experience. Christ tells me to believe that I am totally clean with no sin, but my daily experience is I am not that. That's like the theological side to it. I don't think that answers the question you're asking, because I think that just describes like there's the theological description of the problem you're facing or that I face. It sounds to me like the question being asked is, okay, yes, I find in myself these two things. In my heart, in my soul, I want to follow God's law, but I daily find that my flesh <laughs> gets the best of me. And it sounds like the question is something like, okay, thanks for the description. Now what? What am I supposed to do with that? Yeah, the how then shall we live? In light of that, how do I take those steps forward? Do you think, Peter, is some of this, I guess to be personal about it for a minute, if you don't mind, but it's like, is some of this just an invitation from God to grieve your sin? Does that make sense? Rather than like, give me the five steps to be done with it, it's almost back to the the what started us, the book Interior Freedom. The principle that, okay, I've seen my sin. I've seen my selfishness. I've seen the, my desire for control. My instinct is, okay, I got to I gotta fix that. I got to be done with that. I don't, I don't want to look at that long enough. I don't want to accept that's me. I want to be done with it. Mm. But your emotion about it is like an invitation from God to actually accept it. And acceptance means grieving. Oh, let me grieve for a while that I have this deep, deep, desire for control that has hurt a lot of people. Mm. I think God is bringing to mind the Beatitudes, Jesus's words on the Sermon on the Mount, um, particularly the first two he mentions in Matthew 5, 3, and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn. Actually, I'm just remembering this. In the introduction to Interior Freedom, the author basically says this whole book is a commentary on this verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So that's fascinating. So there's something about that being poor in spirit that is recognizing my status, my condition. I am a poor and needy sinner. And the reality of that is that I've got a lot of sin going on in my life. Lord have mercy. And then I think rather than the response to that realization being, oh crap, I better work harder 
so that that's no longer the reality. I mean, maybe the next beatitude of blessed are those who mourn is like, ah, like that is something to mourn. Like that is it in a good and proper way to say, ah, this hurts me hurts others. And that's, that's not right. And it's, it's heartbreaking. That makes me think of what little I know about helping people through grief, which, you know, this is where the disclaimer in the podcast comes that we're not experts and we don't know what we're talking about. We're just, we're just doing the best we can. But in my own experience with grief and with helping people with grief, when something really bad has happened, someone has died, something has broken, a relationship is over. There is no shortcut to the grieving process. And the way that people get stuck in those spots is because they're afraid of grieving and they're afraid of the overwhelming feelings and they're afraid of accepting the reality. And so they don't. They live in denial. And the only way through a horrific reality that you can do nothing to change is to grieve it. But one of the important elements of grief, of grieving and lamenting, is acceptance, right? It's ceasing to deny that it happened, but to look it full in the face, to own that it happened, to accept that it is real, and to cease trying to deny what you can see with your very eyes. And the parallel there for me, and I understand this from personal experience, is none of my demands for control or selfishness are ever fixed. I never get out of them. I never get free from them if I deny that they exist. But that's what we're doing so often is we don't we do not want to accept that we are a person who demands control and has therefore hurt other people. We feel like, much like the person who's facing the death of a loved one, if I surrender to this grief, I will be overcome and die. If I surrender to the reality that I am a person who grasps for control and has hurt other people, I will not be able to survive. So the only thing I can do is not accept that reality and deny it. And paradoxically to our experience, the opposite is truth. It's only through accepting responsibility for how I've hurt people, what I'm actually doing, what's really going on inside of my heart and why it's there. Can you begin the process of like grieving it? Then doors open up for how to move past it. And that's what I'm hearing you say when you say, blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn. Yeah, there's a lot that I relate to in that and thoughts that I have. This term has been thrown around in, in different circles as a way of characterizing a false gospel. It's called the gospel of sin management, right? Kind of meaning Christ has saved me and redeemed me. And the, the point from here on now is like, I can manage my sinful behaviors and stuff. And honestly, that's a very attractive message. And and as you were just describing, Brandon, like the the hard path of grieving our sinfulness and, and not just in a momentary realization like, wow, I'm really sinful. And here is the ways that I hurt others through my sin. But this becomes part of my life reality that I am constantly acknowledging my sinfulness and sitting with that and grieving that that seems really sucky. That seems so hard. That doesn't seem pleasant. I don't want to do that. Nothing about what you said seems attractive or appealing to me. I'd much prefer the gospel of sin management in this case, where somebody comes to me and says, 
I know that you feel like a sinner, but you can you can do away with all that. Don't don't sit there. Don't be with that, that anymore. Like that's just keeping you down. You are capable. I think that's the to keep in keeping with the analogy. That's like my husband just died, my wife just died, and somebody coming to me and saying, "You don't need to grieve this." You know, hey, let's get out there and date again. You know, that's and it's like, wait a second, what? What I actually need is somebody to come and say, and here's the analogy. This is what the gospel is saying to the person, right? You said to me, I don't want to sit there and grieve my sin. I don't want to face what I've actually done. And I think you're right. I don't think anybody wants to. I don't think I can if it's like, just do it. You know what you need to do? You need to grieve. You need to take responsibility. There is no human being in the world that I know that would ever have the strength and the willpower to do that. What the gospel is saying is that literally God himself comes and says, I promise you that if you will be poor in spirit and you will mourn this sin, if you will face yourself and your evil, I will protect you, I will keep it from killing you, and I will not allow it to damn you. I will go with you into that grief and I will support you, and I will constantly remind you of how much I love you, and I will constantly remind you of how powerful I am to protect you from all the damage, and I even guarantee the end result that it will be good for you and others. And like, that's the gospel. That's what we all need. And I think like right there to me is where the two things meet. How does the gospel, you are totally reconciled to God, meet the need of how do I then become sanctified more like Christ? Well, the one thing I have to do to be able to get rid of sin is to truly face it, truly take responsibility for it, no sugarcoating it, and admit that I am entirely incapable of fixing it, which without the promise of God himself saying, I will help you and be there and never abandon you. Without that, then you're right. It's the most foolish thing in the world to do is to say, let me actually face my sin and admit my powerlessness over it. Amen to that. Sharing my experience and the things that are kind of stirring up in response. I've been involved in, in Christian recovery groups. Frequently, they point to the Beatitudes that outline the certain principles of recovery. The first one is realize I am not God. I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing. My life is unmanageable. <laughs> yeah, to sit with that without any other statements without the hope of the next principle, it feels like damnation. But the next principle based on those Beatitudes is earnestly believe that God exists. I matter to him and he has the power to help me recover. And I feel like so much of my life is lived like remembering one of those, but not both of them, you know, where I so often find myself feeling hopeless and depressed when I look at my life and go, crap, I'm powerless. There I go again with the insanity of my sin. I can't change. I don't have the power to simply do better, try harder, and make a change in my life. And it is hard to remember the gospel. It's hard to remember that I am not alone there, that Christ has the power to help me recover. There are two tangents that I don't think are tangents that I would like to comment on on that. I have recently heard many people in various contexts, use the word, I need to remember something. I need to remember the gospel. It's so hard to remember the gospel. 
I need to remember how much God loves me. And I am suspicious of that language because to me, it sounds like as I've listened to these folks, and I've said it myself, it seems like we're sneaking back in through the back door, the secret holiness sauce. That if I could just remember it at all times, all places, then all my problems would be fixed and I'd be able to manage my sin. That's exactly, (laughs) I literally have that thought. That's exactly how it feels to use like an analogy. I have the software downloaded, right? The gospel message downloaded. If I just was running it all the time, then I'd be fine because it's so freeing when I remember it, but why do I not remember it? And what I want to say to that is that seems to me to be a subtle deception that once again is sort of, I'm looking for the shortcut. And the answer to it is, is to let go, is to surrender to the actual way God works. And the answer to that is no human being is capable of always remembering anything, first of all, or always having any thought being in their brains constantly. (laughs) And even if we could, we would still be broken and have things that we do wrong. So that's not even the answer. And yet there's a truth in this, which is it's a constant returning to the gospel. It's a constant returning to God. And in that cycle, it's almost like the washing machine cycle. It's, you know, I go out in the world and I live and I get tempted and I sin and I return to God to be washed and forgiven and reminded. To me, in the daily cycle, that feels like no progress is being made. I'm just in the washing machine. Paradoxically, over time, in God's economy, that is actually what is making us better. And it does actually release us from sins over time. But I also want to point out that the important thing here is no human being can be in that cycle alone. That's why, for example, this is not just a shameless self-promotion, but it is a promotion. Like, that's why we exist as a ministry. Like, you and I cannot remember that I am loved by Christ, washed clean, and free from all these worries if I just try to live my life alone. I need you, Peter. You and Rachel and I have experienced in this office frequently. I need you to come into my office and share your struggles with me, and I can say, you are washed clean. And I'm got all of a sudden I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm preaching to myself. You know, I come in and I'm having a bad day and I'm like, guys, this sucks. And you guys are like, well, why don't we sit and pray about that for a minute? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I needed you. <laughs> I have my own spiritual director. I have my own group. I have my, I, my church. I, I return to church every Sunday because of that. The liturgy that I go mm-hmm. through every Sunday is a reminder of that. So it's like the lie is if I could just download it and run it, everything would be great. The truth is... We are constantly being reminded, and it sends us out with new things, and we come back and are reminded again after we've sinned. Luther talks about the life of the Christian, and he I don't need to give all the history to it. Actually, if you want to hear a little bit more about it, my podcast with John Kleinig recently talks about this a little bit, but it's to a standard medieval model of progression in life. He has a different one. The Latin is oratio meditatio tentatio. Oratio means we hear God's word. God speaks to us. The speaker is God. Oratio, God speaks to us. We hear his word. Meditatio, we meditate on his word. That's where we pray and respond. And then what happens is instead of now we ascend into heaven and have these visions, we go out into the world and we are tempted or we struggle. Tentatio. We go through temptation and anxiety and sin. And what does that do to us? drives us back to God's word and we hear his word 
and we respond and we go out into the world and are tempted and struggle and we are driven back to God's word. In God's way of working, that is how he actually makes us better in life. That is actually what the process of sanctification looks like. We don't get to see the sanctification necessarily in this steady inclination. We experience it as this cycle. This is reminding me of something that God has repeated to me frequently in recent years. My Christian maturity, growing closer to Christ, is not a journey towards independence, which is often what I want it to be. I want the gospel, again, to be that Jesus has made it possible for me now to do everything. I can study enough, I can practice enough, I can pray enough to be holy, to be sufficient, to be independent, not needing others, not needing reminders, not ever forgetting. I can attain to that maturity on my own. You know, I am in control. There is independence and control that Jesus has given me, right? He's He's given me the booster shot I needed, and now I can do it. Thank you, Jesus. And I don't find that to be true in my experience. And and yet there's still something so seductive about that image of the Christian life. Independence, true control. Here, Peter, eat this fruit. And you'll be like God. <laughs> yeah. And, but what has been helpful is, and, and so often when I hear the exhortation to be Christ-like, I think that means Christ never sinned. Therefore, to be Christ-like is to never sin, to manage my sin, to have that independence and control over my sin. Good. That's what it means to be Christ-like. No. What Christ modeled for us was total dependence upon God the Father. Like that's emphasized all throughout the Gospels, particularly the book of John. Jesus is often remarked as doing is that I and the Father are one. I am listening to him, depending on him. So the Christian life is not, oh, be Christ-like and therefore grow in my independence and ability to not need God, but to walk this road of holiness on my own. But look at Christ's example, his intimate communion with God, constantly going to the Father being renewed, depending on him for everything. The being Christ-like, we are very mistaken, as you rightly point out, if we think that means that Jesus somehow had strength in himself to be sinless. The phrase that the scriptures use is that he was filled with the Spirit. And if you think about what that phrase means, it's used throughout scripture. Think about all the people that you know are filled with the Spirit. They end up being able to do essentially superhuman things because they have, not by their strength, but by God's strength, they are able to. What it means when Hebrews, and it brings us full circle, relying on Christ, our high priest, who knows what it's like for us to be tempted, and he is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that perfectly did faith, and he explains exactly what it is. This is how he stayed sinless, and this is how he became our high priest, and this is how he became effective as our sacrifice. He did nothing of his own accord. That doesn't mean by his own willpower, he never did anything. It means he never relied on his own willpower. I'm totally surrendered to God's power. I have no power. It's all God's. In his human nature, that's what he did. 
He is the perfect example of complete and total and utter dependence in everything. Total surrender all the time. Never, never trying to do anything. Quintessential. Jesus never tried to do anything. He only ever surrendered to God's doing everything. Don't take that in. He wasn't God. That's not what I mean. I'm just saying that's why he is the, as a man, the author and perfecter of our faith. Um, I think we need to wrap it up here. There's there was a there was a second tangent that I really want to go on that maybe we can go on another time, and just to tease to people, maybe we'll do this. But there is a mistake I believe that we sometimes make in presenting the gospel, where we say people have to come to recognize their sin first before they can accept Christ, which is technically true. I believe that's right, but we touched on it. No one can accept their sin. No one can say, I am a sinner, unless they first believe it's safe with God to do so. So there's this weird thing that happens. I can't just, I can't not give you the gospel before I tell you that you're a sinner. You have to know that God has actually got goodwill for you before you will ever have the ability to accept that you're a sinner. It's a real interesting thing that I'd love to talk about at some point. Thank you so much, Peter. And listeners, thanks for tagging along on this conversation. I hope you found it useful or interesting or thought-provoking. Please let us know what you thought. We would love to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at signpostin.org. Address all of your deep negative comments to Peter and address (laughs) all of your laud and thanks to brandon and that will be a we'll make sure that we respond to those thank you for tagging along and may the grace of christ go with you wherever the road takes you thanks for listening don't forget to visit us at signpostend.org while you're there sign up for our e-newsletter and we'll send you a free ebook also a big thanks to all of our supporters Signpost N is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry, and we exist only because of our generous donors who make everything we do possible. Please consider supporting us with your recurring donation. Visit signpostn.org slash donate.